Good morning, New Life Church. Let's see if you're doing that after the sermon, okay? Let's just hold that. Um, you know what? It feels, it has felt so good already in this first half hour just to be here with you. It always feels good to be together with you, but it just felt a little bit more so this morning. I, I don't know if you felt the same thing, but just to feel your worship wrapped around me and the encouragement that comes from like just kind of with one voice together as one people like pursuing God together, enjoying God together. Boy, just thanks for encouraging me this morning. And then to see this beautiful family up here, like hand in hand, um, loving one another and walking with Jesus, uh, it's so encouraging. And Erica, my wife, leaned over to me a moment ago as the family was up here at the booth and said, I feel like I'm looking at us 11 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, three little girls, and I just want to tell you, Jordan, three daughters is a blessing, but you're going to need a second job. You're going, to, you're going to need to make more money, I'm just telling you that, but it's a blessing. Uh, so you might wonder why all this stuff is up here, and you probably already figured out, you've heard tomorrow is VBS. This room is going to be full of kids. It's going to be awesome. It, it is, and I'm, I don't even just say that just to sound good. I love VBS. It is one of my favorite times of the year, and so uh, this is always an exciting time, and I don't know what the odds are that I fall into a moon crater here as I'm preaching, roaming this stage, and I don't want to see your eyes on Cosmo here. I'm going to be, t I'm going to tell if you're looking at him instead of me, okay? This is, thank you. One person gets my humor. So just so you know, over the next five days, you're going to see a different character every week. How VBS works is there's five Bible buddies. One is revealed each day, and it, it's like the kid's favorite thing. What are the Bible buddies? So that's always going to be an exciting reveal. This is Cosmo, Bible buddy for day one. All right, so this is my first time preaching in almost four months. For those of you who might be visiting this morning, I've just returned from a three-month sabbatical, and I've been wondering when I get up here, am I going to know how to do this? And uh, am I going to feel kind of rusty at this? And... Um, <sighs> Scraping the bottom of the barrel, guys, okay? <laughs> this morning, I got into my office 20 minutes before the service. I couldn't find my Bible. I called, Eric, I called Annika, Can, is my Bible at home? Like, search for it. Sure enough, my Bible is sitting there at home on the table. So I'm just a little discombobulated. Had to make a quick run home to grab my Bible this morning, but we'll, we'll see how this goes. It's good to be up here again. I just want to thank you as a church for, for blessing me and then just blessing the pastors of this church with the opportunity to have that break every six years, um, kind of 10 weeks, just to get away, to refresh, to renew. And it was really good. So thank you for that, that uh, opportunity. And um, some of you know a little bit about what happened during that time, but um, we did, um, well, uh, near the beginning of that, went to visit my mom, and, and, and right before I left, I had shared with you that she'd just been diagnosed with cancer, was, was beginning chemo, and really not doing well, physically or emotionally, was a wreck. And uh, the great thing is my mom, she's going to watch this tomorrow morning. My mom and dad, they always watch the sermon Monday morning, and uh, she is doing so good. And when I went there, she was in a really, really dark place, and over a week, I got to see God at work kind of transforming my mom, which was really cool. Uh, so anyway, thank you for all your prayers. She's, she's just had her last round of chemo last week, and she's doing really good. Uh, emotionally, physically, she's got uh, five 
five weeks, I think, of radiation coming up at the end of the summer. So appreciate your prayers that you've, that you've already um, given to God and that you will continue to as well. We did a lot of travel. We went to Jamaica for a week. Uh, we, we out to Alberta a few times, long weekends away. I spent a month landscaping my yard. So drive by, 45 Montgomery, check it out. Tell me what you think. It was really good just to use my thinking man arms. And um, I got more sun. I'm, this, I, this is my skin is as dark as it's been in a long time and my hair is lighter than it's been in a while and uh which means it was already looking thin and it's looking even thinner that's what my kids told me um but uh it was a great time of just renewal and just doing some different things and it's good to be uh, to be back here in in all the the driving that we did we we now have three drivers in our house to do that together because my daughter Annika my oldest she's now driving this summer, she's going to go for her full license, and then she'll be able to drive alone. So she, she's, been, uh, she's been driving a little bit there with us. And um, one of the things they always tell new drivers, they warn them about, is the danger of uh, overcorrecting, right? Like, when, when, you're, when you might find yourself veering towards one ditch, and maybe that one wheel hits the gravel, what can be your tendency? To yank the wheel right? A lot of people that hit the gravel don't actually end up in that ditch. They end up in the other ditch, right? And you've all seen videos of that this way and then veering across the interstate and hitting that ditch. That's a very real danger. And so when, when kids learn how to drive, they got to be, listen, when that wheel hits that ditch, don't just react, right? You, you just got to be kind of calm and kind of get back into the center of the road because it can be really dangerous to um, overcorrect because uh, there's always two ditches. Not, not just on kind of real roads, but, but, but any road, spiritual roads, there are always two ditches. And this is why in the Bible, sometimes you'll see Paul saying this and James saying that. They, they, seem, they sound like they're saying the opposite thing. Are they contradicting one another? No, they're addressing two opposite ditches they want to warn you about, right? James is warning you about thinking that you can have faith and not actually strive to be obedient to God, that it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your works are as long as you believe in your head in Jesus. And he's warning us against that ditch. But Paul, of course, he's always warning people about the other ditch, right? This, this belief that you can, through your own efforts, your own work, that you can secure God's favor and His blessing. You can save yourself. And he says, no, it's by faith alone that you're saved. And so there are always two ditches, even in the spiritual journey. And so spiritually, there's this danger always of overcorrecting and hitting the other ditch because we might not even be aware that there's a ditch back there because we are just so fixated on this ditch. And so sometimes I've, I've tried to get in the habit of when I'm dealing with an issue and I kind of when I've identified this one thing that's wrong or I want to avoid, I, I try to ask myself, what's the other ditch that I want to avoid too? What's the other ditch? That's kind of what we're going to do this morning, because last week, as we're going through some psalms through the summer, we looked at Psalm chapter 2, uh, where the psalmist keeps us from wrecking ourselves in one ditch, the ditch of thinking that we can live independently from God, because there are some people that they believe that they don't need God. They resist God. They want to live life apart from God. They think that their wisdom is better than the wisdom of God, and they want to be free from His authority, free from His commands. 
And so the psalmist warned his readers there in Psalm chapter 2. This, is, this was the attitude of some. The kings and the rulers rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their chains, God's chains, and throw off God's shackles so we can live life our way. We can be independent. And so last week, if you were here looking at that psalm, we were warned about this one ditch in which we can find ourselves wrecked, which is trying to live life independent from God, working for freedom from God. This morning, we're going to look at the overcorrection because somebody could look at that and go, well, I don't want to do that. I want to veer away from that. And maybe that's most of us because I think most of us, we would go, well, that's not my attitude. That's not what I want. I, I, don't want, I don't want to be free from God. I want the favor of God. And so we can find ourselves working, striving to secure for ourselves not freedom from God, but favor from God. And I want to suggest to you that's the other ditch that we can find ourselves overcorrecting into if we're not careful that the psalmist this morning, as we look at Psalm 127, is warning us about. And I think many of us, if, if, as we hear this message, we're going to be able to relate to this. I think many of us, we might find that our desires, our fears, our anxieties might, uh, of, of being outside of God's blessing might actually be that which drives our actions, drives our thoughts, drives our emotions, causes our minds to race when we go to bed. Has that ever happened to you? You lie down for rest and rest can't come and sleep can't come because you're thinking of all the things you should have done that you didn't do, all the things you could have done that you didn't do, all the things that might happen in the night that you maybe should, should be addressing that you won't be able to because you're lying in bed resting. You ever, you ever been in that space? where your mind is just racing and you're fixated on this feeling like maybe, you know, I haven't done enough. I haven't been good enough. I haven't been smart enough. Maybe you can relate to that. That's why I love the psalm this morning, Psalm 127. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. Psalm 127. If you own a Bible and it's not with you this morning, I just encourage you uh, to, to bring it with you. When you come here on Sundays, I think it's just great to have it, to open it up, to have it rest there on your lap as we go through this together. And so Psalm 127, it's, it's just a little psalm, and I chose to, uh, to look at it this morning because I think it uh, helps us uh, from overcorrecting after what we heard of last week, but also because it has a little section that talks about children and raising children. And what we've just witnessed this morning with the dedication of the Booth children, I thought it might be appropriate. And as I read this in a moment, it'll be up on the screen, there's only five verses, you're going to go, hold on here, this, this seems disjointed because verse 1 and 2, it all makes sense, it goes together, but then verse 3 and 5 when he starts talking about children, it feels like there's been two separate things that have just been jammed together in one psalm, and what do they have to do with one another? And we're going to find out as we go through this kind of that there's this one big idea here that ties all of these words together. Psalm 127, let me read it. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and you stay up late 
toiling for food to eat. For He, that is God, grants sleep to those He loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. You know what a quiver? A quiver is the thing you hold your arrows in, right? They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. All right. We'll unpack that together. But I, I, what I first want to do is I just want to put on the screen the big point. I think what is the big idea of, of these five verses, and then we'll kind of unpack that. And hopefully at the end, we'll kind of see how this psalm is saying this. I think the big idea of what the psalmist is saying here is this. Provision and protection are not ultimately our accomplishments, but God's gifts. Another way of saying that is prosperity and security are not ultimately our doing, a result of our efforts, our accomplishments, but they are God's doing. They are God's gifts to us. I think that's the big idea of the psalmist here because this psalm speaks really about the relationship between our work in the world and God's work. And if, and if you've ever thought deeply about God and how He interacts with our life, with your life, you've probably asked that question. What's the relationship between my work and God's work? What is that relationship? Well, this psalm is kind of addressing that um, and, and kind of shows us what happens when we understand that relationship wrongly and then what happens when we understand that relationship rightly. And we're going to see really the psalmist, he's, he's covering all of life here because he says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. He's talking about building and watching. He's talking about the activity of creating and the activity of kind of sustaining uh, maintaining something, and really these two categories kind of encompass pretty much all of life. So this really applies to all of us. You don't have to be a watchman and you don't have to be a house builder for this to apply to you. What is the relationship between our work in the world and God's work? And I think there's really three possible answers to that question. The first possible answer somebody could give is they could say, well, God does nothing and we do everything. God does nothing and we do everything. And there's a lot of people, maybe even most people in the world, that actually live that way, with that attitude, that belief. Now, of course, if someone is an atheist and they don't even believe in God, of course, that's going to be what they think. There is nobody else working for me. I got to do it myself. I'm fully responsible for my own security, for my own prosperity. There is no other. But I think many of us, even Christians, those who have put our faith in Jesus, who love Him, might find ourselves maybe even unwittingly acting the exact same way, going through life, facing situations with this attitude that it's all dependent on my ability, on me, my ability to work hard enough, to be smart enough, to be good enough. There's no one else at work, but me. I'm fully responsible. I think, if we're honest, many of us who are Christians might actually live like that often. But the psalmist says that's not true. He says here, unless the Lord is at work in something, all of your work is in vain. Vanity, 
That word vanity literally means like a vapor, something that kind of looks like it's there for a moment, but it's not really there. It's an illusion. And so what the, what the psalmist here is saying is control is an illusion. A lot of people are living with this illusion of control, that everything they have, they have because they did it. Everything they don't have, they don't have because they weren't able to do it. And if they just did more, they might have it. But the psalmist says, control is an illusion. But, that, but thinking that way, that God does nothing, that we do everything, that affects how we do everything. It affects how much you work and it affects how you work. If you think that way, you might just become a workaholic. You might overwork. Isn't that what he said there in verse 2? In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Well, yeah, if you think that it's all on you to accomplish something, your security, your prosperity, you might just not be able to stop because what happens then? So thinking this way can, can lead us into a state of just overwork. We might find ourselves in sacrificing things that are ultimately even more important. It affects how much we work, and it affects how we work when we work. He says, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. That word toil there is, is um, the word like frantic, frantic energy, anxious work, not happy work, anxious work. Do you know what it's like to toil, to toil anxiously? My guess is you do. If you think that God does nothing, that you do everything, that it's all on your shoulders to accomplish, your work will be toilsome, burdensome, pressured, stressful, heavy work. The work of the pagans, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, don't be like the pagans who run around trying to secure for themselves. What will they eat? What will they wear? They're running. They're not walking. They're frantic. Jesus, not so you. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, all that you need. Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. God will add all of these things to you. So the psalmist calls this vanity, this idea that God is not working, that everything is up to us to do, that vanity is foolish because it doesn't adhere to reality, and it's wrong because it denies God's sovereignty. It inverts the size. It makes a big God small and a small me big. And again and again in the Bible, God had to teach His people over and over again um, not to hit this ditch of thinking that everything, security, prosperity, was theirs, was their responsibility to accomplish. He did that in a variety of ways. One of my favorite stories, 2 Corinthians chapter 20, verse 15. This, this army comes against the people of God. It's bigger than them. They're scared. The, the king cries out to God because he says, like, these guys, they're going to destroy us. They're way more powerful than us. 
God sends a prophet who says, don't be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. I love those words. We sang them. It doesn't matter what you're facing. The battle is not yours. It's God's. Those are beautiful words. You are never at work at a place and a time when God is not also at work. And so he instructed in this instance the people of God on the morning of the battle not to go out there with swords, the fighting men, to fight them sword to sword. They all went up as families onto the ridge and they, they worshipped God in song and God sowed discord amongst the enemy and they destroyed one another. It's a really cool story, but it was God's way of teaching them to resetting their attitude. It's not you that accomplishes, I accomplish on your behalf. The battle belongs to me. And so he gave his people this thing called the Sabbath every seven days. Stop working in the fields frantically. Take a break. Stop. And remember who God is. Remember in your rest that God is sovereign. That God is at work. That's what the Sabbath was there for. Not to be a killjoy so you couldn't do stuff, right? To force them to stop, to remind themselves and to declare to the world around them that was still frantically working that God is a God who is at work in our lives. So it's not true that God does nothing and we do everything. But the psalmist shows us here, secondly, because another answer to the question, what's the relationship between our work and God's work? The psalmist is saying it's also not true that God does everything and we do nothing. Because some might say, well, if God fights our battles, then I don't need to fight anymore. Hey, listen, every time an army comes, we're just going to go up the ridge and sing. And what would happen? They probably wouldn't last very long. Hey, if, if, taking, if stopping one day a week expresses trust in God, how much more does it express trust in God to not work six days a week? And some of you are like, Rusty, don't you do that? Isn't that... Like, Isn't that what you do? Yes, it is. None of your business. Someone's got a golf. And you say, no, it's... (laughs) The psalmist here, notice he doesn't say that God's work is a replacement for our work. Right? He's not saying because God is building the house, you don't need to build. Because God is the one watching over the city, you don't need to guard. He doesn't say that. He's saying, while you are building and while you are watching, God is building and God is watching. In other words, God's work is not a replacement for our work. The builder still labors, the guard still watches. This morning, I have this bad habit of thinking that if, if there's some situation that, like a, a car that's making a funny noise or a light that comes on, if I just wait long enough, it'll go away. I have this bad habit. I've just figured God can do it. If I just pray, lay hands on the car. Just this morning, because one of our vehicles, um, every once in a while, we don't know why it just doesn't start. You'll go out there and just, you've got to jump it, and we can't figure it out. And every so often it's happened, but it, it's, it's been a longer stretch where that hasn't happened. And I, that, that thought dawned on me this morning. I said to Erica, Erica, that hasn't happened in a while. You notice that? I think maybe it's worked itself out. And she just laughed. 
It's like, <laughs> Rusty, no, don't. No, it doesn't work that way. But, you know, we can kind of bring that attitude maybe into um, our spiritual life, right? Because God is at work, because God is sovereign, I don't got to do anything. It doesn't really, nothing I do really matters ultimately. But what, what he's saying is there's God's help should not make us couch potatoes. It should not make us passive prayers. We should pray and we should work. That's what James says in James 2, right? When there were needy people in the church, where they came and then there were others that said, oh, we'll pray that the Lord provides for you. Go and be blessed. And he says, pray, but don't stop at prayer. Work, help, labor. Prayer is not a replacement for action. So the psalmist is saying here, it's not true that because God is at work, we don't need to work. So we, we, we got to be careful. And so maybe, maybe this resonates in some of your lives uh, because you believe in God so much, you trust Him in so much, you're kind of getting lazy. Lazy with your kids. Lazy with your marriage. Lazy with your spiritual life. Lazy with your giving. Lazy with your service. We sometimes disguise passivity and laziness in this spiritual garb of God's got it all under control. He's going to do what He's going to do. Let go and let God. We've got to be careful not to hit that ditch because the psalmist says, God is at work, but the builder must still build and the watchman must still watch. We are still called to work. Our work is important. There is a third answer to the question of what is the relationship between our work and God's work that I think the psalmist is providing for us here. I think what he's saying is God does everything, we do something. God does everything and we do something. The the psalmist says unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain, but he doesn't say unless the builder builds the house, the Lord labors in vain. He didn't say that. That would be different. So in other words, our work is important, our efforts are important, God's work is decisive. God does everything and we are called to do something. So Paul, he would say in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I worked harder than the rest, but not yet I, but God's grace at work within me. I was working, but even as I was working, I was knowing that it was God's grace and His power at work in and around me to bring something about. God's work is decisive, and our work is important. And if God's work is decisive, that means two things. It means I should work hard, but I should sleep harder. Because there's a lot of people that they work hard, but then they don't sleep. But what he's saying is here, if you get it right, you're to be someone who works hard and sleeps harder. Look what he says there in verse 2. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for God grants sleep to those He loves. So the opposite of this sort of frantic work is this restfulness that allows one to sleep well. 
And like I said to you before, and I'm sure you can relate, I, I have found that the time when I find Satan afflicts my mind, my thoughts the most is when I go to bed, when I want to stop. Because he says, you shouldn't stop. What's going to happen if you stop? Right? You need to keep doing Eight hours, seven hours, six hours, however long. You know what could happen in that time? And whether it's, whether it's Satan and demonic beings that influence thoughts or whether it's just the own anxieties and fears I have in my own heart that bubble to the surface, they don't bubble, my anxieties don't bubble to the surface when I'm working. They bubble to the surface when I'm resting. Which is why this whole sabbatical thing I knew was going to be a bit of a challenge. It's like to be able to trust God, to be able to step away for a ch- not, 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 not a weekend, but for, for that length of time and just learn to trust and rest in the fact that God is at work even when I sleep. His work is decisive, not mine. It's not my job to do everything. That's His job. It's just my job to do something. But I find that when I try to rest, sometimes that, that whether it's at night or whether it's just a day off or time with the kids and the family maybe, sometimes those anxieties bubble up to the surface and rest can feel wasteful and even dangerous. But what he's saying here is rest is not wasteful. Rest is not dangerous. Appropriate rest is one of the ways we express trust. God. If God's work is decisive, then I can be at rest both in my efforts when I work. I I can build not frantically. I can build restfully. I can watch over the city not frantically. I can watch restfully. But if God's work is decisive, it also allows me to rest from my efforts and to be able to stop and put something to the side and just trust God with that, to be reminded I am something, but God is everything. Because I need to rest, I'm limited, God is unlimited, I'm finite, God's infinite. I need to sleep, but God does not sleep nor slumber. He's watching over you even as you sleep. If you know that the one who loves you unfailingly is in complete control of history, then you will be able to sleep well. In fact, there's a quote, I'm really bad at remembering quotes, but this is one that has stuck with me and I find myself, especially in in those periods of restlessness at night, reciting to myself. It goes like this, God can do more for, for you while you are asleep than you can do for yourself while you are awake. I like that. God can do more for you while you are asleep than you can do for yourself while you're awake. I need to remind myself of that from time to time. When I feel frantic, I need to say to God, I trust you. I am something, but you are everything. So this is the big idea here. Provision and protection are not ultimately our accomplishments, but they are God's gifts. They are a work of His grace, not something that is merited, not something that is earned, but something that is received by God in His grace. Okay, what about this whole verse 3, verse 5 thing? Kids, children are a heritage from the Lord. 
offspring a reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame they will con- uh, when they contend with their opponents in court. Okay, what's the point? Well, I think there's a connection here. There is a connection that maybe you can understand because you're mostly grown-ups and I don't want to get too graphic. There's a connection between going to bed and rest and children because that's where the stork comes <laughs> to deliver Out of that rest, not out of work, not out of work, but out of rest, God brings forth children. Out of the joy of marital, not out of work, out of the joy of marital union, children come. I think what he's saying is here is, is your children are not your work. Yeah, I know you had something to do with it. but you didn't make your kids. Our children are not our work. They are not ultimately a result of human effort. They are God's doing. And not just in the womb, but outside the womb. As they grow, they are, in other words, they they are not our, our work. They are a gift from God. That's what it means when it says they are a reward from God. And don't misunderstand. He's not saying that one of the, the sign that you are in God's favor, is that you will be married and have kids. That's not what he's saying. Okay? Jesus was not married and didn't have kids, and Paul was not married and he didn't have kids. Okay? It's not what he's saying. Some people, they struggle to have kids, and it's a real pain, a grief. He's just trying to make the point that your family is not even your accomplishment. It's, it's, and how it turns out ultimately is not even all on your shoulders as mother and father's family, but it is God at work. Because you see that, 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 that word house, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Well, that word house there has that double meaning. It even does today, but even more so in biblical times. That word house meant literally like the building that you lived in, but it also meant like the family, right? The house of David, all of his children and those children and those children, his whole line, that was the house of David. So when it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, he's not just talking about bricks and mortar. He's talking about your kids and your grandkids. That God is at work, even as you are at work building a family. Children are a heritage from the Lord. What is a heritage? It's kind of like a legacy, it's, it's a mark. It's like continued Im- multiplied impact that isn't really you. Something God used to like, now there's another generation and another generation that is, that is doing, accomplishing, that God is using to make a mark in the world. It's your heritage and it ultimately wasn't you, that was God, that's God's doing. It is a gift from Him. So in other words, we must also recognize God's decisive work in the lives of our children, which means you can't read this and be a helicopter parent. Because being a helicopter parent is what? It's saying, I got to protect my kid from anything and everything. And I gotta, I, we have to control all the situations to ensure that Johnny is prosperous and secure. 
But the psalmist is saying that's not how it works. And if you do that as parents, then we're setting our kids up to fail because we're not showing them that God's work is ultimate, that God is sovereign. We are communicating that control belongs to us and that doesn't lead to their health and their happiness. I find this encouraging. As someone with three kids, they're still growing. Many of you here, you're in the same boat. Because parenting even, it feels like a burden. It feels like hard. The things you do just feel so decisive. And it is very important. It is very important. But what he's saying is it's not ultimately important. God's work is decisive even in building your house. We cannot ensure the prosperity and security of our kids and our family, and we we have to learn how to let go, right? And and I'm learning that with a kid who's driving now. In a month, she's going to have her full license, and daddy isn't even going to be beside her. I'm just going to hand her the keys, and she's going to go. And I'm going to follow her on Friend Finder. (laughs) That dot has been stopped for 30 seconds. That, that's longer than you would stop at an at intersection. You okay, honey? Yeah, Dad, stop calling me. All right. Okay, we're going to have to navigate that, right? But what he's saying is here is we can trust God with that. It, ultimately, it's God that is building our family. And our family is one of the ways that God is building us and watching over us. When you have a quiver full of arrows, I don't know that, there's a few people in here that I would say have quiverfuls. Some of us, most of us, we, do, we have like, we have, a, we have a few arrows in the quiver maybe. Um, but back in, especially in biblical times, right, uh, in that agrarian culture, like if you, if you had those kids, what did they do? They worked on the farm, right? They worked on the farm. They, God gave you this gift that wasn't even your doing, and now God is helping you, and He's providing for you, and He's defending you through them. So you can understand that in that agrarian culture. And then in verse 5, the way it ends, it says that this, this person who has these children will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Someone else have their Bible open? What does it say? If yours is different, what does it say? Not that they will contend with their opponents in court, but at the city gate, when they contend with their opponents at the city gate, you know, at the city, maybe that was a place where legal transactions have judgments were made, or maybe he has in mind here, there are people that are coming against this man for one reason or another, accusing him, wanting to oppose him, they are enemies, and here's a picture of this man who in his youth God had given him this quiverful, that they're standing behind dad. Dad's now frail. He's bent over kind of like this. And and then you've got John. (laughs) Okay, I almost fell in that moon crater, right? So if you had the over-under on, he's going to fall in the moon crater, you almost won there, doubled your money. Um, You have John there, and then you have Sam here. Maybe maybe you have Samantha. Girls, they can can defend too, right? Right? You got Jim over here, back. This is the picture. There's opponents coming this way, and he has these to defend, to deliver him, to provide for him. So maybe that's a reminder. If you've got aged parents, like, you know, be behind them. 
So all of that, he says, he says even those, those, those children that are gifts from God, God is using. Now, he's not just building them, but as he builds them, he uses them to provide for dad and mom. And all of that, if you trace that back, that provision and that security, where does it come from? It comes back to the sleep that God grants. It comes back to that trust, that restful trust. But it doesn't say that God grants sleep rest to everyone. It says He grants sleep to who? To who? Wake up. To who? Those He loves. To His beloved. He grants sleep to His beloved. That, that's a term that would be used like of a lover, a very close friend, a real intimacy, right? God has beloved. He grants sleep to His beloved. And I guess the natural question is, we should stop there and go, well, who are God's beloved? Am I God's beloved? How do I know if I'm God's beloved, if that applies to me? That's a good question, bringing this to an end here. You know, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, after man and woman sin and they fall, God comes and He delivers judgment and the repercussions of turning from Him. Uh, and, and He talks about the offspring that's going to come from the woman. He gives us glimmer of hope, right? There's going to be enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And the serpent will bite the offspring's heel, but the offspring will crush the serpent's head. And there's this glimmer of hope, like God already speaking about this big plan of redemption, this plan to deliver people. And through the Scripture, over and over, we see God unfolding this plan as He foretells of this one He will send, this Son. And ultimately, when David comes along, we have the prophecy that from the house of David will come this one who will save, who will deliver, who will bear up under their sin, who will become for them peace, who will give them eternal life. Now, those of us or Christian, we know who this is, right? This is Jesus. Jesus is this offspring of the woman who came to defend and to deliver us in the face of all of these enemies that array themselves against us. And you know, all Scripture foretells of Jesus and all Scripture is fulfilled by Jesus. Did you know that every time you read any of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it's actually talking about Jesus, right? He is, that's what he says. He, he, he perfectly fulfills the law. All of Scripture foretells of Him and is fulfilled by Jesus. And so when I look at this verse, I, I see something more happening here. He's actually not just talking about the man's own children. Now, we think it's Solomon that wrote this. In fact, that's what it says at the beginning there, the little footnote, a psalm of Solomon. 150 psalms, only one is attributed to Solomon, and it's this one, okay? Solomon was, of course, the son of King David, and Solomon was of the house of David, and one of the direct descendants of Solomon is? Who? Who? Jesus, right? Of the house of, coming from his house is Jesus. And so this picture, right, of not being put to shame because these sons are there to defend and deliver... That's not actually ultimately about his own children. This is a reference to Jesus, right? The one that God would send to become the ultimate defender, the ultimate deliverer against the enemies of sin and shame and death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with giving us his own son graciously give us all things? Right? John 1, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, God gave the right to become his children. Children not born of natural descent or a husband's will, but children born of God. To all who received him. Who is this one that's defending Perfectly, because you know what? Some of you have already realized your kids don't do that. Some of you, you, you got kids, they haven't done that. They've become the problem, maybe in your life, not the ones that are there to defend and to deliver. But we all have a defender and a deliverer that God has sent in the person of Jesus who delivers us from our sin, delivers us from death, delivers us from a meaningless, hopeless life and brings us into rest because if we receive Jesus and trust in Him, we have the favor of God. And it's not our own work. It's received as a gift from God in Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't add to it. You can only receive. And so Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, I think you have those verses there, you can throw those up. Jesus would say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, say it, rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who are those? Who's the beloved to whom God grants rest in the face of whatever else is going on? Those who have received the Son the offspring of the woman. Those who have received Jesus as Lord and Savior who has brought me, has brought you into this relationship with God, this favored relationship with God to become his beloved. If you have received Jesus by faith as your Lord and Savior, then you are the beloved of God. Then you can know that God is working for you so you can sleep. You can rest. God invites you into that rest. So I just wonder in your life, is there an area where you feel like you've been doing it alone? Where you have not been kind of aware of or thinking about the reality of God's presence at work in a situation? Is there some area of frantic toil in your life? Like you've been doing something for Him but not with Him? God invites you into rest this morning. And I just want us to just take a, a moment to listen to God and respond to this in prayer. But you can throw those up there, uh, Rob, as, as we go, maybe that next point, those, these three things. As we go from here, and maybe you find yourself in that place of sleeplessness, uh, sleeplessness remember that God is working. God is always working Embrace being loved by God. You need to tell yourself often, <laughs> if you've received Jesus Christ, you, you, you need to remind yourself often that God loves you and you need to thank Him for His love. You need to embrace that. You need to live in that. And thirdly, you need to trust that the decisive efforts in all things are not yours. The decisive efforts are God's. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that it is true that you are at work. It is true that you are at work in everything, that you don't sleep, you don't slumber. It's true that you sent your son Jesus into the world to bear our sin, to bear our shame, to make a way for us through faith to enter into your family, to be your children, to be in this place of favor, of security, of prosperity. And that's just given to us. We just thank you, God, for your grace and your gifts. Help us to live, Lord, in light of that. Not like the the pagans who run around trying to secure things through their own efforts, their own security, and their own prosperity. Help us not to be those that just sit on the couch and, and don't work alongside you. Lord, but help us to be those who, as we work, who work hard, Lord, for you, that we would always know that you are at work around us and through us and in us, um, and that we can work just with this restful spirit, and we can go to bed, and we can sleep just knowing that as we sleep, you are at work for the good of your people. So, Lord, would you just speak to each one of us, just what does it look like to live in this rest in the areas of our lives, yeah, where it locks today. Lord, just speak to us, show us, and empower us um, just to live in that place, to know your rest. In Jesus' name, amen.